Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and joining me once again is a board member of Citizens Take Action and a practicing attorney with the Bird Law Group, John Landis. John, thank you for being here once again. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we are going to get into a hot topic, a very divisive issue within the movement for an amendment to get big money out of politics, one that divides activists and organizations. Uh, And that issue is corporate constitutional rights. And more specifically, should a constitutional amendment to get big money out of politics abolish all corporate constitutional rights? We're going to talk about the extent to which corporate constitutional rights are or are not the cause of big money in politics, uh, the kind of consequences that could occur from abolishing those rights, the viability of an amendment to do so. But before we jump into that, John, you had reached out to me earlier in the week with something that you wanted to talk about on the show about why getting money out of politics is not necessarily a partisan issue, even though many people perceive it that way. Well, if you look at what the, this, you this is something that's been true for a very long time. This is something I initially started researching in 2004. If you look at the donations from large corporations and more recently I've been looking at with regards to, you know, what you would classify as the super rich billionaires, multi-billionaires, a lot of them, obviously there are, you know, a handful of, you know, what one could refer to as very ideological or hyper-bargain, you know, super rich individuals, but most of them donate frequently to both parties and both sides of the ideological spectrum. And that shows when you look at somebody Like Elon Musk, for example, one might have various opinions as to what his actual viewpoints are. But you look at his actual record of how much money he has contributed. He's donated to Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, committees for both parties. And that just goes to show that this isn't about ideology. It's about influence and power. And if we want to restrain the influence and power of a handful of people and a handful of companies from controlling everything in our politics, that should not be a partisan issue because these people have their influence on both sides of the spectrum. It's an important point because when you think of some causes or some issues like gun rights or a woman's reproductive rights, it seems like the money can break down in a partisan way. Like the NRA is conservative, Planned Parenthood is liberal. But Elon Musk, as an example you brought up, or a lot of banks or big financial institutions, like you said, they contribute and spend on both sides. They don't necessarily even seem to care who wins. They just want to buy that influence. It's not an idea of liberal versus conservative. It's an idea of wealthy individuals and corporations and unions drowning out the rest of us. And as you said, as smart as you know, tech billionaires may be, they shouldn't necessarily have a thousand or a million times more influence than the average American. Exactly. Have and like if you look at times more you know, some of these individuals us. who at one point were sort of lionized and sort of mystified, someone like Travis Kalanick, the former head of Uber, and you now look at some of the things in both of his private life, his, his work as an executive and his political positions. And this is not necessarily somebody who deserves a bigger seat at the table than anyone else. And I think we need to rethink the amount of power that we're giving a handful of people and a handful of companies in our society. Yeah, this isn't a partisan issue. And the more that we emphasize that and the more that we are willing to work with 
people, regardless of their political persuasion, where we have common ground on this issue, I think the more quickly we will succeed. All right, well, now let's turn to the theme or topic of this episode, the corporate constitutional rights issue. And the first thing we want to get into is the extent to which corporate constitutional rights have played a role in letting big money into politics. Now, for those of you listeners who listened to the very first episode, I went through the cases that have led to big money in politics. Buckley v. Vallejo, that allowed individuals to spend as much as they want to influence elections, or Arizona Free Enterprise Club, that case that the Supreme Court struck down public financing in the state of Arizona, those cases didn't have anything to do with corporate constitutional rights. But Citizens United is the case that people think of when they think of corporate constitutional rights. They think of the phrase, corporations are not people or corporate personhood. John, in your understanding or studying of Citizens United, to what extent were corporate constitutional rights the basis for the Citizens United decision? limits from the larger issue of corporate personhood. Those are ba- those are two different sets of cases, and they were designed for different reasons. And corporations have been given these rights because courts and legislators have determined that in order for them to be effective instruments – they need to have certain constitutional protections. Whereas the spending limits are a long history over the last 30, 40 years where we've seen these limits that were put in place and going back long before this idea that we could effectively limit the amount of monetary influence institutions, whether formed as corporations or unions, have over our politics through limiting spending that was eroded for a while prior to Citizens United, which is where decision where five judges essentially decided to rule on a question that was not really at issue in the case in front of them and basically eliminate all of these limits entirely. And I think that's a separate issue from corporate personhood. I think you're right that it's a continuation of what had been Supreme Court doctrine for 30 or 40 years. Like in Buckley v. Vallejo, the court gave individuals the right to spend as much as they want. And Citizens United really just extended that right to groups of individuals, whether it's corporations or unions, which most people forget that unions were affected by that decision as well. And you know the idea that that slogan, corporations are not people, really caught on after Citizens United, a lot of people think that that was more because it was a popular phrase or it was like a good fundraising tool or applause line than that it actually fit what the court had said in the decision. And indeed, a number of legal scholars have said that even if you abolished corporate constitutional rights the day before Citizens United, the court still could have issued the decision the same way. And so I think the idea that Citizens United was based entirely on corporate constitutional rights is kind of a misconception. We should also talk about the potential unintended consequences that might occur if a constitutional amendment abolished all corporate constitutional rights. Because when you think about Hobby Lobby, the decision that essentially treated corporations like they have a freedom of religion, or when you talk about Citizens United, corporate constitutional rights sound really bad. There are other contexts in which they don't sound so bad. And when you think that those are rights that businesses need to function, what's your opinion on well, I mean, the extent you, to which yeah, some I mean, corporate I think it's constitutional to think rights what, are actually desirable? Why these rights exist in the first place. And also, I think we need to 
have a broader conception than maybe some people have as to what is organized as a corporation. For example, all the major media outlets are corporations. And as we're seeing from the current president and current administration, very troubling attempts to um, restrict the rights of the media and to um, question the media's independence and veracity. I think it's important to remember that media outlets such as Washington Post and the New York Times are corporations, and they should have First Amendment rights. If they, if, if if you literally interpret as corporations have no rights, that would imply they don't have First Amendment rights. They don't have Fourth Amendment rights to protection against search and seizure, which could mean the current administration could come in and theoretically conduct search and seizures without it without a warrant or probable cause. Or nonprofits like Citizens Take Action, Correct, or exactly. whatever your favorite nonprofit and is. Chances and I think are also, like with regards to the corporations, are not people. I mean, nobody. It's sort of a, a bit of a canard because nobody's literally saying corporations are people. The questions are are what rights corporations have. And I think the more effective way to to look at this is just instead of corporations are people, corporations aren't people. Clearly, they're not people. But clearly, to our minds, I think corporations need to have certain rights, such as First Amendment rights. So the question, instead of thinking, is what rights should corporations have? What rights should corporations not have? Yeah, one of the interesting things to me is advocates of abolishing all corporate constitutional rights will sort of cherry pick the bad examples of corporate rights. Like they'll point to Citizens United and Hobby Lobby as a way that corporations abuse their First Amendment rights. And then use that to argue that they shouldn't have any rights. But you could do the same thing for human beings. You could say, well, criminals use their Second Amendment rights to buy a gun and then kill people. Or the Koch brothers use their First Amendment rights to spend unlimited money to influence elections. Therefore, we should abolish First Amendment or Second Amendment rights. And of course, as to individuals... Nobody would buy that logic. For the same reason, I don't think we should buy it for corporations. But a big part of it is that I think that when people are thinking of corporations, instead of thinking of a small business or a nonprofit, you know, something they may view favorably, they're thinking of the biggest, most villainous multinational corporation instead of thinking of the real life consequences exactly. for and every corporation, and think not it's just important. the ones yeah, that Yeah, it's, like, it's a form of cherry picking. And also, I think a lot of times... You know, if you look at something like Hobby Lobby, I think while I strongly disagreed with the court in the Hobby Lobby decision, I don't think the problem with that decision was based on quote unquote corporate like constitutional rights or corporate personhood. The question at issue in that case is, is that type of discrimination permissible by a company that is or a store open to the public based on purported religious grounds? I don't think that case was fundamentally about corporate personhood. Yeah, the issue the issue is not that with regards to campaign finance law, the Supreme Court gave corporations this special right they shouldn't have given, and they gave it only to corporations. They gave that right to corporations, unions, and individuals. And like you said, we need to, you know, pick the good versus the bad. This is a problem my dad would say, you need to use a chisel, not a jackhammer. We need to keep the rights that corporations need in order to function, like the right to file a lawsuit in court or the right to you know, not have Google or Apple or Facebook forced to turn over our personal data because they don't have Fourth Amendment protections. We need to separate those good ones from the Hobby Lobby Citizens United ones. 
And I think that's more difficult and maybe it's a little less appealing to people because it's a more nuanced message. Absolutely. But nonetheless, from a legal perspective, it makes a lot more sense. Now let's turn to what I think is the most important reason that a constitutional amendment shouldn't abolish all corporate constitutional rights, aside from the whole question of whether corporate rights even caused big money in politics and the prospect of unintended consequences. And that issue is viability. Remember that any amendment needs two thirds of Congress and three quarters of state legislatures, which means it needs massive support. John, what's your prognosis for the viability of an amendment that abolishes all corporate constitutional rights as compared to other proposals like the Restore Democracy Amendment that go after big money in politics, I, corporate, but eliminating don't take corporate, that constitutional corporate constitutional rights, rights at this point and for the foreseeable future, like legislatively and politically, is just a non-starter. And I think it's important to go back to the beginning when we were talking about bipartisanship and the fact that this is not a partisan issue, regardless of what partisan viewpoints either of us or people listening to this podcast may hold like that's not what this is about. And both practical and the practical reality is in order to get something passed, we need bipartisan support there. This is not something that has any chance of success going down a straight party line vote from either party. So when you look at eliminating corporate personhood altogether or corporate rights, more, more accurately put, is something that does not have support in either party. You know, it might be perceived as being something that would be more progressive friendly or more Democrat friendly, but it is not something that is going to gain support from a large percentage of the Democratic Party, let alone the Republican Party. And therefore, it's just a non-starter. And also, I think having the issue of getting money out of politics and, you know, the goal of overturning Citizens United in this history of bad judicial rulings with regards to money and politics, when it's conflated inaccurately with this corporate personhood issue, it, it it's damaging to the actual goals that we're trying to achieve, which is to get money out of politics, because then it's put in this framework to an issue that it's maybe tangentially connected to, but is not the same issue. And it's an issue that, as we've discussed, has a lot of broader implications beyond campaign finance that are rightfully very troubling to a lot of legislators. And therefore, it's going to make it harder for us to get headway on money and politics issue if it's tied in so closely with this other movement that practically has very little chance of success and also creates a lot of implications that getting money out of politics in and of itself does not. John, I think you you put it well to me when we weren't on the air. I think you said something like, getting big money out of politics is not a divisive issue, but abolishing all corporate constitutional rights is a divisive issue. And that's why it makes more sense to pursue the approach that is not divisive especially because an amendment is so difficult to pass. And for our listeners out there, this isn't just our opinion. I want to put some hard numbers on the support for both different approaches, because we've had various amendments kicking around in Congress for years since Citizens United. And as of most recently, over 170 members of Congress have signed on to or co-sponsored an amendment to get big money out of politics, which is very encouraging. On the other hand, even among Democrats, there's only about one third of that level of support for an amendment to abolish all corporate constitutional rights. So as you said, even among Democrats, there isn't 
the significant level of support we need. And among Republicans, it's virtually non-existent. So if you're just looking at it from kind of a mathematical perspective, the numbers on abolishing corporate constitutional rights don't add up. In order to get this passed, the reality is a lot of legislators are going to vote based on whether they think this is something their constituents want and something that if their constituents they do not support, their constituents might potentially not vote for them. And to some extent, that is how our democracy is supposed to work. So that is not necessarily completely a bad thing. But it's just the reality that we need to get something that has like the large scale support of a lot of different voters on both sides of the spectrum. And getting money out of politics is something that has that. Going after corporate personhood does not have that, either from legislators themselves or just as importantly from the constituents that those, those legislators are ultimately going to be responsive to if they want to keep their jobs. I think that transitions nicely into our next little section, because you're talking about the reality of how this gets done and the role that constituent pressure or constituent support plays in the process. And the last thing I wanted to talk about before we conclude was why this matters, why this, why we're having this podcast and this discussion about the corporate constitutional rights issue, because many of you listeners out there may be wondering what someone asked me after a panel discussion I was on recently, which was, why can't all the groups just support different approaches? Why can't we just have six or seven different amendments and everyone supports the amendment that they like the best, and then everybody feels good about what they're doing? We think that's not the best approach for getting this amendment passed. John, can you speak to why it matters that we shed light on this corporate constitutional rights issue and urge people to think critically and maybe support a more viable option Absolutely. like the Restored Democracy Amendment? That I think if our goal at the end of the day is just for everyone to feel like their voices, and these are not things that I don't think are important, but if our, if our primary goal is for everyone just to feel like their voice is heard, and that they feel like they are fulfilled in promoting exactly the type of language or proposal that they most strongly feel passionately about. If that's the goal, then it's fine to have lots of different approaches and everyone sort of just doing their own thing, potentially working it to some extent at cross purposes and also just without like a coherent approach that's actually going to that legislators and policy makers are going to respond to. However, however, if our goal is to actually get an amendment passed to get big money out of politics, that is the wrong approach. Like I'll use an analogy. And let me jump in real quick before you continue your analogy, because I wanted to just mention for those of you who aren't aware, the Restore Democracy Amendment is narrowly targeted to get big money out of politics. That is the amendment's goal. It would overturn Citizens United. It would shift power back from the Supreme Court to Congress, state legislatures, and voters because the last 40 years have shown that we can't trust five unelected judges to be the guardians of our campaign finance system. We, the people, can do a lot better job and are a lot more in tune with political realities and the way money corrupts than those five justices are. So when John's talking about a more targeted approach or focused sure. approach. So the restored democracy when you look at like the problems of having approach. too many different approaches as opposed analogy. to sort of focusing on the bigger picture and what actually is going to achieve the goal. I was involved very recently in a very contentious con congressional primary in California where it's open primaries. 
and there were lots of people running. It's very similar. You had a lot of different candidates and a lot of different supporters, those candidates who felt very, very passionately about their candidate, which is totally understandable. But if you actually want to achieve the goal, which in our case is a constitutional amendment to get big money out of politics and restrain the influence of a small handful of big corporations and billionaires, or if your goal is to achieve a, a result in an election that you want, you have to see the bigger picture and people have to band together and put aside their pet passion project, their favorite candidate, their favorite language, their favorite you know particular set of approaches and see what is our large scale goal and what is the thing that can actually achieve that goal. Because what if it's 10 different people running or if it's 10 different organizations with 10 different approaches trying to get amendments passed, the goal is not going to get accomplished. And to be clear, for those listeners out there who may be advocates for abolishing all corporate constitutional rights, we're not saying that that's not a separate goal that can be pursued through other means or another amendment. I think where we run into the issue and why we think it's important is because right now what's happening within the movement for an amendment is like John said, there's work being done at cross purposes. There are activists out there, you know, meeting with members of Congress and lobbying in their community saying, we need to abolish all corporate constitutional rights and any amendment that falls short of that should not be supported because it's too weak. And not only is that not true, but it's divisive and detrimental to the movement as a whole. Um, Before we finish up, there's actually a a passage that I wanted to read that I thought was really on point with regards to this discussion. Interestingly, it came from Lewis Powell, the author of the famous Powell Memo. So the Powell Memo was a strategy memo written by Lewis Powell, who at one point was a Supreme Court justice. And this strategy memo was a guide for how to increase corporate power in the United States through the use of a campaign to build a more activist-minded Supreme Court. So basically the exact opposite of what we're trying to do here. But nonetheless, this passage that he wrote, I thought was very appropriate. Powell said, quote, but independent and uncoordinated activity by individual corporations, as important as this is, will not be sufficient. Strength lies in organization, in careful long range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort and in the political power available only through united action and national organizations. And what's crazy is even though we're trying to do the opposite and undo a lot of Powell's work, the message still makes sense for the purposes of our campaign. A coordinated, organized, strategic, well-planned effort is what's necessary to pass a constitutional amendment. For years, we've had this disorganized 10 different amendments, groups bickering with each other, activists working in cross-purposes approach, and it's not getting us where we need to be. So I think ironically, that message from Powell holds true for what we're doing. And John, you had an analogy regarding an election. When I think of an analogy for this, I often think of just a group of people trying to, to break through a door. And it's strong and it's tough and it's not easy to do, but it's possible. And the important thing is we need as many people as we can on that door pushing and trying to break through. And so 
when I see some of these other organizations or activists and they're over there, you know, watering the plants, aka working on the corporate constitutional rights issue, or they're over there fluffing the pillows, supporting an Article 5 convention path, and only that path, even though it doesn't have a realistic chance of success, I can't help but think, get over here and put your hand on the damn door and help us push. If the forces that want to keep big money in politics are organized, then we need to be doubly organized. So if you're passionate about getting big money out of politics and you want to help us break through that door, then the Restore Democracy Amendment is narrowly focused on that goal. And as an organization, Citizens Take Action has the amendment and the strategy in place to achieve that goal. What we need are more people pushing on that door. We need more volunteers, more supporters, more people spreading the message about how to pass an amendment. So if you want to sign up and volunteer, please do do so through our website at citizenstakeaction.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And John, thank you for joining us once again. And thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast.